Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't want to flag it to the world? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I've got no medical background, but I'm a 39-year-old woman who has her eggs in the freezer. I'm joined as always by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Certified Reproductive Endocrinologist and Infertility Specialist. We started this podcast with the aim to provide easy-to-understand information on hard concepts relating to fertility, infertility and all aspects of women's health. We love reading our listener reviews and work hard to take feedback on board. If you enjoy listening to Knocked Up and find our resource useful, please take a moment to leave a review and this really helps others to find us. Don't forget to subscribe. Welcome back to Knocked Up, the podcast with Dr. Rayleigh Alou from Women's Health Melbourne. How are you doing? Great, thank you. Now, this morning I sent you a text saying that I'd heard on the radio that a huge amount of legislation regarding IVF in Victoria was changing and we're going to have to talk about it tonight on the podcast. So here we are talking about it. And in summary, what would you say? In summary, a report was released today and it's a report that was worked on for a long time. There was an interim version of the report published about six months ago. It was a report that has been written by Michael Gorton, who is an impressive guy who's led the review and into ART practices, assisted reproductive treatment practices in Victoria. And what the review's done is had a look at a lot of different aspects of taken feedback from doctors, from IVF units, from uh, regulators, from consumers and IVF patients and really commented about the framework that surrounds IVF in Victoria that was set up about 10 years ago. Look, I've read the document. It's quite a long one, you know, over 100 pages. It does have 80 recommendations. It does have 80 recommendations. Um, Look, I was a little disappointed to see that most of those recommendations are very bureaucratic. Like it really talks about, you know, really micro minutiae of regulation. And from the point of view of a clinician, I would have liked to see some more substance and a little bit of, of more bite to it. One thing that I think is great is the recognition of the rights of same-sex couples. Yes, so really the highlight of the 80 recommendations is number 59. Let's just go back and talk about how this has been in the past. So particularly for same-sex female couples, which is predominantly in Australia who's been accessing um, ART in terms of same-sex couples up until now, and I'll talk to you a little bit about same-sex male couples who can definitely access ART in Australia, but there have been real barriers to that which still exist. Um, 
And in my practice, for example, this year, I've treated two same-sex male couples only in all the patients that I've helped have babies through IVF. So that just gives you an idea of how often I see same-sex male couples on a day-to-day basis. And that's because in a same-sex male couple, you need an egg donor and a surrogate. And in Australia, both egg donation and surrogacy have to be altruistic. There's heaps and heaps of barriers to access. And so really the couples I've treated have had a BYO egg donor, somebody who's close to them, um, and who have had a surrogate who's either been a friend or a friend of a friend um, who's offered to be their surrogate. And that's not everybody. But in terms of same-sex female couples, often we're accessing donor sperm from a clinic-recruited donor, occasionally from a known donor, which is also a good option. But uh, from a clinic-recruited donor in Victoria, there have been a limit of how many families can be created from a, a donor. And actually the problem is actually it hasn't been families, it's been women. So how many women can conceive from a donor? So whereas if, let's just say there was a heterosexual couple and they needed a sperm donor to have babies, they could have, you know, kind of as many babies as they want and that would be called an allocation from that donor. But where it becomes complicated with same-sex female couples is quite often it's desired to have a baby first carried by one mum and then the second baby might be carried by the other mum. And often they might use their own egg as opposed to reciprocal IVF where you might use your partner's egg, which is a whole other kettle of fish. But in terms of, you know, using your own egg to carry, uh, often it's something that couples want that it's the same donor for both mums. So the children share genetic material? Yeah, so they've got the same donor. So even though the egg came from one mum and then the other mum, they're, they're both or, or however many children have the same donor. Yeah. And in terms of how that's been looked at until now, it's really been that there's had to be two allocations from the donor for the one family and it's been per woman, not per family. And one thing that's pretty clear in the ART review is that, you know, they recommend that, you know, a same-sex female couple be considered a family and can have a donor regardless of whose egg it is. And I think that's a really good step forward. And it's an area of medicine where it's not super clear in the law. It's kind of we do what is considered best practice and what's recommended by kind of these kind of reports. So I think that will help us move forward as IVF care providers to have support to um, better treat families in this circumstance. So that's really the highlight and probably the one big change that we'll actually notice. What are some other things that the report covers that perhaps don't really mean as much change as we like to think it is? Because I've heard it on the radio, I've seen it online and I've seen it on the news and I barely pay attention to those things. So there's a lot of hype around this report today. What is it really going to change? Look, I'm just not sure what it's going to change. Um, You know, I kind of hope things change. But, you know, particularly there was stipulation within the report that there's nothing going to happen immediately, that changes suggested in regulation may happen over several years and require changing in legislation through parliament. And so there's a lot of... um, a lot of language in there that makes me think that nothing's going to change overnight. 
there's been talk about destigmatization of donor conception, about education around fertility as a health promotion activity, which I'm really pro. As you know, I've, I've got a PhD in preconception health promotion and uh, I've been a provider for the Your Fertility website in terms of generating content, which just as a plug is a fantastic resource for anyone trying to conceive. Uh, and also uh, it's, you know, kind of a, a real interest area of mine to promote fertility well-being and health through empowerment with knowledge and proactive action. So, uh, and obviously lifestyle change and, and optimising holistic health. So I think, you know, investing in education would be great. It's lovely that they've recommended it. Let's see it happen. In terms of other things, I think that what the recommendation not to discriminate against LGBTI communities, I think that's great. Let's see it happen. Let's see providers um, enter cycles as Medicare eligible uh, instead of quote unquote social infertility. Um, let's see it for single women too. I mean, I, I think there's nothing in the report that I've found that calls for equity for single women. Uh, I think single women uh, are a group that need our support. They have um, fewer resources than couples. They're the least able in our community to uh, support out-of-pocket costs and yet we label them socially infertile when they want to have a baby. I think that's unfair uh, and I would have liked to see more on that. A lot has changed in the last 11 years in our society and I think that there probably was a lot more stigma amongst all aspects of society, including healthcare providers, about being gay, having families outside of traditional nuclear models, having stigma around egg donation, around sperm donation. Egg ar- freezing. Yeah, around egg freezing. Um, and I think all these things are really being normalised now, which is great. And society has decided that it's not okay to discriminate against these groups and certain groups among us. I I was a bit disappointed in the review in a way. I know they're trying to address issues considered problematic within ART, but I do think that ART providers in general, especially doctors, especially doctors who've gone to the trouble of, of getting qualifications that take a good 15 years to obtain... We really have our patients' best interests at heart. And so, you know, I, I do take a little bit of offence of some of the things that were said in the report, but, um, you know, I also think that we need to have um, an openness to criticism as well. So there were a few key concerns which led to the report being issued in the first place. It'd be good if we just sort of address those together and got your point of view, your perspective on, on why these things would need to be addressed. So the first one was high costs, which is obvious for anyone who knows about the process and who's been through it. Cost is is a very big deal. So tell us about why IVF is so expensive. So uh, look, lots of things in medicine are very expensive and IVF is expensive because the technology is expensive. Do we often forget that medicine, good medicine, is very expensive because we have such comprehensive healthcare in Australia? Yeah, except we don't for IVF. So for lots of things, like for example, if you break a hip and you need a hip replacement, the cost to the government would be tens of thousands of dollars 
for that care. Probably $100,000 for a hip replacement, I would say, because you would take into account the admission, the surgery, the rehab, you know, all of these things, the prosthesis, all of these things together are crazily expensive. But we are very, not spoiled, but we're, we're very well off in Australia in that our taxes pay for that. Um, we can choose to have private care and it's somewhat of a luxury. Uh, in IVF today, there has been very limited support for many aspects of care and there has been no funding of IVF per se in the public hospital system ever. So it's something that is completely unfunded. And while in other aspects of medicine, it's a choice as to whether you access private care, you can choose to access the creme de la creme, you can choose your specialist, you can have care in an amazing private facility, you can choose to have all the bells and whistles in other aspects of medicine. But for essential care, you could also go public. Whereas in IVF, that hasn't to this date been a priority for our government now that's not an industry problem that's a government spending problem and you know all we have to do is look at our gps and realize that their costs for their consultation were frozen a decade ago so that they've had no pay rise uh, for a long long time you know that's an issue of government spending on health that's not an issue of you know ivf providers it's just that they're businesses and they need to pass on costs to what are essentially when it's not funded by Medicare a consumer. Uh, Medicare pays the same for whether you have absolutely top-notch care with a subspecialist with a CREI qualification in a premium laboratory with amazing technology compared to if you have no frills GP-led care in a um, very basic lab. So the difference is passed on to patients and that's why IVF is expensive. Another concern is around unclear success rates. We've got an episode in this separately, but just briefly, there are so many numbers. How do we know what's real? So, look, success rates are unclear if you don't have individualised counselling because every person and every couple face their own unique set of circumstances. There is not an average IVF patient that I see every day, I see, you know, 20 individual patients who are all very different from each other every day. And in terms of, you know, each couple, what I do is I investigate them thoroughly, I prognosticate and make kind of predictions individually as to how hard I think it will be for them to have a baby you know, and the real question is not what is the average or what is the average in your lab or what is the average in your practice. The real question is what's my chance? What's my chance of success in your hands? And this takes into account patient factors. It takes into account clinician skill. And, you know, sometimes I, I have my limitations. So, for example, I had a patient today who had a huge fibroid um, that, in my hands, I would have to do an open operation to remove. And I actually referred her to a colleague because I thought that she might like to have that done laparoscopically and I felt that in in my hands that wasn't, you know, kind of a procedure that I felt I could do in the best way possible. And that's how I feel about all my patients. If I have a patient who has a particular problem that I need to phone a friend, I'll do that. 
uh, because I know that my limitations, you know, I don't think there's really anyone out there who can manage an IVF cycle, um, you know, without being completely up myself better than I can. You know, I've done the CREI, I'm a subspecialist, I've had a lot of experience um, and I give really high quality individualised patient care and I spend a lot of time with all my patients and my practice is, is really modelled around patient-focused care. So, you know, I, I very much would feel very strong in that area. But, you know, in some areas of significantly advanced laparoscopic surgery, for example, some, some doctors go and do four-year fellowships just doing the most difficult fibroid operations. And certainly I think your prognosis as a patient would be different in their hands compared to your average gynaecologist. So, you know, certainly knowing our limitations is important and there are clinician factors. Not everyone who does IVF has a CREI. Um, some people are GPs who are guided in IVF by one CREI um, managing from afar. So certainly there are lab factors and working with a, a premium laboratory outcomes will be significantly different to working with uh, a no-frills laboratory. In terms of um, patients, you know, some patients in the best hands will have a terrible IVF prognosis. You know, if a woman comes to me, she's over 45 and says, I want to get pregnant with my own eggs, you know, I, I breathe a deep sigh and I kind of have to have a difficult conversation because her chance of that happening is very, very slim. I do feel, however, if there is a small chance that someone will be able to have a baby and I've explained that to them, and I believe that it is still a chance, although a small chance. Um, I do believe that with honest counselling, that patient should be given an opportunity. And most patients will be successful through IVF if they have an open mind. Some patients do need a donor egg. Uh, some people do. Some people need a donor embryo. Some people need a surrogate. These are not easy decisions, but I guess to go back to your question about success rates, labs can tell you, you know, they can tell you generically, they can tell you in our lab, if I have a patient who's under 35 and they have a, a blastocyst that is a 5AA blastocyst, what's their chance in that circumstance of having a baby? So certainly they can, they can prognosticate on that. But... Um, for a given person in front of you starting an IVF cycle, we don't have the privilege of seeing how their sperm and egg have talked to each other in the lab, have fertilised together. Um, we learn a lot. And one of the greatest benefits of individualised care is we learn a lot from a first IVF cycle. My patients will know I always say a first IVF cycle is very diagnostic. It lets us know how sperm and egg are acting together. It lets us to some degree see what the problem is or see if the steps that we've come to that point have overcome the problem. And it's very powerful and I often do pivot and, you know, kind of make nimble changes for a couple uh, based on their first IVF cycle. So even if they're not successful in the first cycle, that gives me a lot of information that I use to alter their treatment. So, uh, look, I think, I think the, the, the long answer to that question is success rates are meaningless and... Um, except if you're generically comparing lab to lab with a uh, kind of like prototype patient group. And, you know, for an individual, they require a full assessment by a subspecialist who can work up the problem and try and help them. So following on from unclear success rates, the other point was about misleading information. So I guess that's about other aspects of IVF, not just success rates. And look, the thing is the internet is a pretty unregulated space and anyone can really write anything on the internet. 
All I can say is that our website at Women's Health Melbourne, I've personally written the clinical content and it is evidence-based and, um, you know, there are some aspects of fertility medicine like every area of medicine where we don't have all the answers yet and when something is unknown, I state that in our information. Um, I think that's really important. So choose your sources uh, carefully if... um, as a, as a patient, you want to find meaningful and evidence-based information on the internet. Another point um, in, the, in the report was about limited psychosocial su- support for patients. What, what are they being offered now, I suppose, through your level of care? So, again, I, I think it's, there's a broad spectrum of what is going on in the IVF world. Um, In my level of care, in my practice, we have um, in-house psychologists at Melbourne IVF who are fully trained in fertility and every couple and every patient who comes through Melbourne IVF has access to those and actually mandated access to their psychologists for individual assessment and counselling. And my patients also have unlimited access for supportive counselling throughout their treatment and even after their treatment. So, for example, if I have a patient and they have a miscarriage, which happens because it happens in life, it also happens in IVF, um, I can send them for supportive counselling from a professional at Melbourne IVF um, at no additional cost to them and they can do that for as long as they need and as many times as they need. So I guess that is an advantage of a premium care model. And that's really not something that through our experience of a public model would be so readily available. Look, I don't know. Look, the public model is a lovely dream and I would love to see it happening. As you know, I do work in the public hospital system at the Royal Women's Hospital and I go there uh, and work in public hospital clinics and reproductive medicine now. There's not publicly funded IVF there, but certainly as a, a visiting medical officer, VMO there, I offer you know, comprehensive consultations to my patients in the public system. They don't always see me. They'll see whoever's on. They have to wait usually quite a long time for a first appointment, often three months or so, and appointments are not necessarily at their convenience, but they get good medical advice. And I never compromise the advice I give to a public patient versus a private patient, but there are some lovely aspects to private practice that unfortunately my public patients don't access, and that is that they... Um, are prioritised, that they get continuity of carer as well as continuity of care in in terms of the medical record. Um, In the public system, we we say there's continuity of care but not continuity of carer. So what that means is we write in their medical record and the next person comes along and reads what the previous person has written but you don't see the same person every time. And so you don't really develop the same relationship with the patient. You don't really have that same investment in their success as you do in private practice. Um, And you can't really offer them the same level of patient care or the same level of comfort and experience as we have because of resources as well as because of just the time you spend with patients. The next one infuriates me. And I was fascinated to hear that Victoria is the only jurisdiction in the world that has a legal requirement um, on police checks before a patient can undertake IVF. So... This is just a recommendation. It's not even approved yet. 
Yeah, so look, getting rid of police checks has been something that IVF doctors have been calling for for decades in Victoria. So, you know, this is really not something that the government can have a go at IVF doctors about. And in fact, you know, I can tell you that regardless of where a patient has treatment or how the care is provided, IVF providers are not involved in this. Police checks have been in place for a long time in Victoria and child protection checks. And cynically, you know, why hasn't the government gotten rid of them over the years? Well, they make money every time someone has a police check and a child protection check. It's a revenue provider for the Victorian state government. And um, so they've been very, very, I guess, unmotivated to get rid of them. Um, I personally have never had a single patient knock back in all the years I've been practising IVF in Victoria and when I've practised elsewhere, it's not been required and I've not seen a different patient kind of cohort or group. So I think good on you, government, if you get rid of police checks and child protection checks about bloody time. (laughs) IVF was once experimental and part of this recommendations is to review how we approach unproven treatments. IVF was once upon a time an unproven treatment. Yeah, so it was unproven until it worked. (laughs) Um, Look, then very quickly it was implemented and I think IVF doctors and scientists now are actually significantly more conservative than those initial pioneers were. Um, But we are innovators, we are scientists, we're all drawn to this area because we love it, we love the fast pace of development. It's changed so much Um, and to think that people used to have such low chance of pregnancy per embryo that, you know, kind of doctors, uh, you know, in the early 80s were transferring four or five embryos in one go on day two or three of development rather than culturing out to a a more um, viable embryo. So... Look, if we think there's a way that we can bring our patients better success, we try it. I think what's important is that while introducing new measures, we've got to always remember the principle of first do no harm, which is the medical ethical principle of non-maleficence, and we mustn't introduce measures before they've been truly proven if there's a possibility that they could be making our patients worse. And I think also it's important to be honest with your patient because there will be hard cases. There'll be cases where patients have an uphill battle and where they'll be at the border, at the precipice of where evidence-based medicine ends. And, you know, empirically or experimentally, we do try innovative initiatives sometimes to help our patients when our conventional wisdom does fall short for them. And I think that... As long as a patient is fully informed and on board and a partner in that treatment um, rather than a victim or a guinea pig, uh, then I think there is still a place for empirical expert opinion-led interventions and uh, they do have a, a place in every aspect of medical care, not just in fertility. And I think all proven treatments were once unproven. The other side of the coin is that some treatments that we think are actually really good end up being useless or not so good. An example is, you know, everybody would have known that in the Middle Ages, the conventional wisdom was to bleed people with leeches if they were sick. You know, now we think that's really weird and maybe a bit crazy, but at the time they thought that was the right thing. So they weren't doing it to harm people. They actually thought they were doing good. So I think 
with some interventions, you know, doctors get excited when there's a small study that shows a benefit and we think, gee, that might help my patient. And then when we do larger studies or randomised controlled trials which take out biases and confounders, we suddenly see that maybe in some cases that that intervention regresses to the mean and perhaps that study group were an outlier or maybe the conditions can't be repeated and maybe it's not a real effect um, because there's always – whenever we do studies, you see there's a p-value and the p-value is the probability that that finding occurred by chance and um, – you know, that will be affected by the methods of the study and also the the kind of um, the subjects in the study and the conditions and whether it was confounding and the power of the study, which we have to, which means how many patients were involved in the first place. And there's always bias, which can be that, you know, maybe the doctor thought it was a good idea so and they really wanted the intervention to work, so maybe they put their better prognosis patients in the group with the intervention or whatever. So really, you know, sometimes we think something's great and then subsequently more research is done and we realise maybe it's not so great. So that happens in medicine all the time in every aspect and things come in and out of fashion. What's important, I think, is to be very frank and honest and not persist with interventions, like, for example, endometrial scratching, once it's been found that they actually are not helpful because, you know, that's when, you know, good medicine gets a bad name. So I, I really don't think that there should be barriers to innovation, but I think we should always pursue evidence-based um, interventions and evidence-based studies so that we can really figure out what, you know, what new ideas should stay and which maybe we should move on from. And that sort of leads on to the next concern of the report, which was around unethical practices. So some things are a little bit experimental and cutting edge. What do you have to say about possible unethical practices? Well, look, I think in terms of medicine, there's no pretending that there aren't a few bad eggs among doctors, um, just like there are among any element of society, you know, and that, you know, sometimes people misbehave, but it is by no means a commonplace thing. You know, most doctors want the best for their patients and are really dedicated and, you know, really do do their best every day. And I think that, you know, to paint and tar all doctors with the same brush for occasional kind of reports, I, I don't really know what the report's specifically alluding to, but, you know, to kind of come out swinging against all IVF providers because of an adverse event reported to, um, you know, a governing body which the details of which are not provided, I think that's a bit low. And I also think that, um, you know, there should be better education about the CREI. Not all IVF clinicians have the equal qualification. Um, not all GPs even are aware of the CREI, let alone patients. But, you know, the best IVF providers have completed subspecialty training um, after you do your six years of ONG training which is after generally well, when in my case I did six years of medical school I did a year as an intern I did a year as a resident in general medicine I did another year as a streamed resident in ONG before I did a six-year ONG training program and then I did three years of subspecialty training above and beyond being a specialist gynecologist in REI in reproductive endocrinology and infertility and, you know, I truly feel that that three years of training that was dedicated to fertility medicine 
um, above and beyond my six years as a subspecialist gynecologist really was what made me a very good IVF doctor. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of choosing your specialist, we have an episode on that. Um, the things that you can do to choose your specialist. It's by no means the only criteria, but it's an important one. So if you do want to access best quality care, choose a specialist with a CREI. And there's a website um, by the Society of um, REI, the ANSRI website. And yeah, look it up and you can see where all the CREI providers are around Australia. Thank you, Raylia, for this impromptu episode. Good to get someone else's view on the news today. Anything else you want to mention? I guess the only other thing in the report that I found a bit controversial was the sperm and egg bank idea of having a public sperm and egg bank. I think that's great. It would be nice. But I think it's a bit pie in the sky. And the reason that I think it is, probably not so much for sperm but for eggs, is that it's actually quite a big deal to donate your eggs. It's quite an intrusive process in the first place. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, I can tell you of my patients who need an egg donor, it's often actually very hard to find one. And one of the reasons that it is hard to find one is that it's not just the stigma and it's not just the asking someone for their eggs and all of the emotional stuff. But, you know, to be an egg donor, you have to go through IVF. You have to have an egg collection and an anaesthetic. You have to have two weeks of treatment in the lead up to that. You do all the donor counselling and things like sperm donors do, but it's expensive. You have to have time off work and it has to be, in Australia, altruistic and it's got no anonymity so it's non-anonymous and and what that means is that a donor doesn't get paid it's not commercial egg donation is not allowed and the offspring from the donation um, the children conceived from the donation are given access to identifying information down the track in the long term about the donor so this set of circumstances really means unfortunately that strangers, women who are not in any way beneficiaries of donating to another person, they're just not, I don't think, rushing to donate eggs. And um, so the idea that this will change anytime soon and they can set up a public egg bank, it's a lovely notion, but... We tend to want to keep the eggs that we've got. Well, look, most egg donors, I can tell you, you know, in in my practice, most egg donors have a vested interest in the patient's success. So they're a sibling or they're a friend or they're a relative and they've got a pre-existing relationship with the patient and that's why they want to be their donor or are happy to be their donor and they're willing to go through the process for them to help them have a family. Um, I think overseas it's different and lots of people go... I saw a patient today in my clinic. Her situation was she had terrible endometriosis and a very low egg count and she went through some IVF herself without success, getting one or two eggs every time. She wasn't old, she was in her early 30s, but she had a really, really difficult case. And her decision was to go overseas and get a donor egg from an anonymous donor. And she did this because... She didn't have anyone in her life she wanted to call in as her donor and it was something that she could afford even though it was expensive and she didn't have to worry that the donor would um, 
be involved in the in their children's life, which for her, I know that there is controversy around this and I know that, you know, there, there's expert opinion that says that children who are conceived from donation of egg and sperm do benefit from having contact with the donor or at least identifying information about the donor later in life. But from I can tell you from patients' perspectives, often they see anonymity as a benefit um, because they like the idea of anonymous donation. Absolutely. And donors like the idea of anonymous donation. So, you know, overseas what happens for egg donors is they're often young, they're often very fertile, mm-hmm. they often um, have financial needs that are you know, significantly met by what they're paid for a donation. So, for example, one of my patients who actually was a donor in Spain, um, I saw her many years later, she told me that when she was 18 she was paid a 1,000 euros to donate her eggs, which to her was a very meaningful thing at the time. And she was happy that she did it because she was helping someone else. And I said to her, would you have done it if it wasn't anonymous? And she said, no, because I like the idea of no strings attached. So I think that is a cultural difference that we have and it's a legal difference that we have here in Australia. That's the main barrier to egg donation. It's not that there's not a public egg bank. It's the other way around. There's not a public egg bank because... Because there isn't anonymity. Because there isn't anonymity and there isn't compensation. So I I think it's really nice that the report had the idea of a public egg bank but um, I wouldn't, you know, hold my breath waiting for it because... of the facility is not the reason why we don't have one. Yeah, that's what I think. So that that would be the only last thing, my parting words for the episode. So, look, I'm sorry to our listeners if I've been a little bit cynical on this one. <laughs> I have to say I was a little bit disappointed reading the report. I thought it could have done a lot more. But anyway, it's a start. It's the first revision in 11 years. So I think at least it's a good start and it's nice to see that in 12 months how far we've come in recognising LGBTIQ rights. Absolutely. Here's to that. For more information about today's conversation, visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and check out our show notes. You can join our listener community through the socials. Look for Women's Health Melbourne or Dr. Rayleigh Alou. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate our growing audience to help us empower and educate more women with real information about fertility please give us a positive review on any platform you're listening to the podcast it really helps others to find us we'll be back with another episode soon 